I'm Audrey Bellis. And I'm Yvette Montoya. And you're listening to Brown Girls Rising, a worthy women podcast in partnership with Nylon and Español. We tell stories about femme leaders and activists of color, making our world a better place. Let's get started. We are here today with Betsy Aime Cárdenas. Betsy is a writer and producer of impactful digital content on a mission to transform hearts and minds. She is the co-host of The Women Who Misbehave, a podcast about the intersections of the political, personal, pop culture, and the spiritual. Betsy spent almost a decade working as an advocate on behalf of women and girls in the legislative, nonprofit, and political sectors. And at the end of 2016, she made her side hustle into her full-time hustle and also launched a digital media consultancy business where she creates and produces content for brands that are transforming the media landscape, including one of our upcoming guests, the Super Mamas podcast. Betsy, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for welcome. having me here. And congratulations on this amazing podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So let's jump right into it. Let's do it. <laughs> let's talk about feminism. Just going deep, going deep right? Going yeah, deep let's from, just talk from the about very beginning. It. Yeah, we we skip past the first date. We move right around to third base. I like it. I like deep and intense conversation. (laughs) Feminism to me is a word I've never shied away from using. My mom was always, I think from the time I was a little girl, she would always say, I'm a feminista, I'm a feminist in Spanish. So she never shied away from that word either. So I never had a lot of the negative associations that I realized growing up other young women had or other people had about the word. To me, it simply spoke to equality among the sexes and um, having choice-filled lives. Oh, I love that. Choice-filled lives. Yeah. So I have to ask you, um, I read that you're a mom, Mm -hmm. and it made me immediately think of um, a Gloria Steinem quote that I've had saved for a while. Love her, by the way. Oh, my gosh, right? Feminist icon. We're going to ask you more about your feminist icon in a little bit. Uh, But she has this line that's, We've begun to raise our daughters more like sons, but few have the courage to raise our sons more like our daughters. How has parenting for you, and you're raising a young son, changed how you view feminism, particularly in today's world? Well, one of the things that happened is when I found out I was having a son, I thought, oh, man, I was ready to raise, like, the next Gloria Steinem. <laughs> there you go. But now I have a son. So I started thinking about the many ways that, as parents, we can have an impact in our sons. And it starts from a very young age, from the way we socialize them, from the way we, you know, we teach girls they can be strong. But we also, in a way, I think, teach boys that they have to be strong. Mm-hmm. That they have that, you know, the way we express masculinity in our society is sometimes very much tied to power and dominance and violence. Yes. So I really thought, and my son is only three, so obviously we're we're learning. um, And I think one of the most important choices that we make, um, if we're heterosexual women, of course, um, is, you know, who we choose to parent our kids with. And in terms of what kind of male or masculine role models we choose to have our kids with. So, um, you know, one of the things that in my house there isn't ascribed gender roles to who cooks, who cleans. I think a lot of this, these things that are political or societal conversations, they really stem down to our personal choices. Right. 
And what are our kids seeing at home? What are the conversations? So, you know, things like slut shaming are not allowed in my house. And this was really funny. But when I found out I was having a son, I told my friends I only wanted gender neutral clothing. And so if somebody gifted me something, which, of course, I'm super grateful. If somebody gifted me something that said strong tiger or brave boy, I even in clothing, I, I was very particular about the messaging and the types of, of language that were being used when we talked about my son and his expression of masculinity. Um, I also don't assume heterosexuality in my son. So we don't say things like, oh, when you grow up and you have a girlfriend, you know, when you grow up and you have a partner, if we even have those conversations. But I think to me, it's just a, a heightened awareness um, that really informs a lot of the choices that we make. Um, when it comes to my son, and I have an 11-year-old stepdaughter too, um, and so we um, do that with her as well. You know, she can dress however she wants to dress, and, you know, we don't say you have to wear a dress or you have to wear this or you have to wear that, even though I'm very feminine, but that's just a choice that I make. Right, yeah. Um, so it's 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 an interesting time, and uh, just being mindfully aware, I think, is, is how I, I do it. Because when I think about the Latino culture, mm-hmm. And the machismo yeah. of the Latino culture. I think that we also sometimes forget that all of those men were raised by women. Yes. And I've called out a lot of the women in my family um, because I'm like, well, who's raising these boys? Right. I was like, every time you say things like boys will be boys, I said, you're reinforcing certain gender norms and stereotypes about what's expected of men and what's assumed of men. And what they can and can't do. Yeah. And I look at my family, my own family, like... The way my aunt waits on my cousin, hand and foot. Yeah. The way she waits on him and then expects his wife to do the same and shames her when she doesn't. Yeah. Or how many Latino boyfriends I've had that don't know how to do their laundry. Like, that's shameful. Like, you're an adult. Like, you should be able to do those things. Yeah. To function as a human being in society, you need to be able to take care of yourself to a certain extent. Yeah, I told a friend recently because she said, oh, you know, my 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 husband, he helps me with the baby. And I said, he's not really helping you. He's co-parenting with you. Oh, my gosh. Well, like when men say they're like, you're babysitting. Not, you're not babysitting. Yes. You're not you're babysitting. Parenting. You're parenting. That is your kid. You're being a parent. <laughs> and so I think it's like constantly... Um, and, you know, my my fiance, he's obviously like a very hands on dad and he grew up with that kind of a role model as well. So that's, I think, what's helpful in that relationship. So if I were to say, you know, to, to our single sisters out there, you know, don't shy away from having these conversations. Don't shy away from setting expectations of what you want it to be like if once and if you're getting ready to get to that point or even if you're not, you just want to know what you're getting into. I think we need to put it out on the table. Yeah. I remember when my my grandpa went away to Chile to like live with our family in Chile for a while and my grandma stayed with us and when he came back they're like in their they were in their mid 80s like I don't know what he expected but my grandma being on her own for six years kind of was like when he came back she was like I don't need to serve you I don't need to give you food like because he would just sit at the table and look at her and wait (laughs) helpless Yeah. yeah and she would be like okay and she just completely ignore him and I remember him saying to my parents like what have you done to her how have you changed her? She's not do. She's not the same anymore. I'm like, yeah. dude, you need to you need to get some feminism in your life. And same things go- goes for us as women, right? We can't want equality and then have rescue fantasies about the men in our lives too. Oh, yeah, you those know? are unrealistic expectations yeah. on both sides. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so I think it's just checking ourselves and save <laughs> <laughs> That took a while to sit in. I was like, wait, what? 
That's a real thing. <laughs> yeah. So if I if I'm not gonna cook a four course meal, I can't expect my my fiance to be able to like build me a house or something. Yeah, it goes both ways. It goes both ways. You know what's interesting, um, Yvette, as you were saying that my mom is the youngest of six, and she one is the one who married the white guy. Uh, I have another Thea who um, ended up marrying a white guy later on too as a second marriage. Um, but my mom's not like that. My mom is the youngest one. She's the only one who went to school here, married the white guy. My mom is not about it. And my mom doesn't cook. I mean, she cooks now. But when they got married, she didn't know how to cook because she always had older siblings who were cooking for her. She was the bebita. Like mm -hmm. nobody ever That's what I was in my things. family too. Yeah. And my grandma, um, so, you know, we do Sunday family dinner and we're having dinner one night and my dad's cleaning up and doing dishes. And my grandma turns to me and she goes, hey, he's doing dishes. Because that's your job. Get in the kitchen, of course, in Spanish. And I'm sitting there like, oh. or if she sees my dad cooking, my dad's a phenomenal cook. My grandma, ay, mija, what it would mean for me to see you in the kitchen. This is why you're not married. This is exactly why you're not married because you you're not cooking for anybody who's going to marry you. <laughs> when I had my son, I had family members who would tell me, like my you know, grandparents, my stepmother, who's more traditional than my mom is, she would say, ¿Y le vas a dejar al niño? Like, you're going to leave the baby? I'm like, with him, I'm like... It's his baby. Yes, we <laughs> yeah. equally don't know what we're doing. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I just have this baby. And he actually already had a daughter from a previous relationship. So we can make a case. He knows more than I do. So I think the baby's going to be okay. I think that a, a big part of us, too, like, we don't allow the men in our lives to step up when we treat them that way. Because it's like, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. But like... Do you think they think that by handing him the child, the house is going to burn down and everyone is going to die? And it's yeah. just like, uh, if we can figure it out, they can figure it out because they're supposed to be the strong ones or something. That's what I've heard. Yeah. And I think, <laughs> I think sometimes that comes because there's an assumption that women are natural caregivers and we're natural at taking care of babies. And I'm definitely I, not. In a my case, caregiver. that was, it was definitely not. I mean, my love for my son was, na was natural and immediate, but. Knowing how to take care of him, not so much. Yeah. Um, speaking of babies, you were an anchor baby. I was an anchor baby, yes. Um, I read that on on your website. Fascinating yeah. story. And, you know, we're talking today about feminism and, and parenting. And, you know, we, we get down and dirty here. We talk about politics and what it means to exist in today's world. Can you share with us a little bit about what that experience was like? Or the fact that you claim it. Yeah, so a lot publicly. Of, so I, I think what happened is I, I wrote that piece for Marie Claire, and I, like a lot of us, was um, horrified, disappointed by some of the rhetoric, rhetoric that was coming out of then-candidate Donald Trump. Um, and when he talked about being anchor babies, and it seemed to me like he was setting very a very narrow definition of of the immigrant experience. And in a way, he was defining me and people like me and who we are. So I wrote that story. Um, I pitched that story in the middle of like being really upset. And I was like, I have to say something about this, which is where most great stories come from, by the way. Uh, and so when the story came out, that's when it hit me. I was like, oh, shoot, I just made a really public statement about who I am and who my parents were. But I have absolutely no, absolutely no regrets. And I think now it's more important than ever than we really um, speak to our experiences because there's a lot of push to define us 
and um, demonize de- us. and demonize us and really define us in these really limited terms. So I think it's more important than ever that we share all of our experiences and we're open about who we are. And I, and I felt that other people were going to resonate with it. And they, and they really did. I got so many positive emails and responses. I also got a few, you know, like, hate, we hate you, go away on Twitter. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, the response was really overwhelming. And a lot of my friends, I think, who share this experience or even share the experience of being the first people in their family to be born here in the U.S., of foreign-born parents, um, they identified with the experience that I talked about in the piece where I talked about feeling isolated and always feeling like I had one foot in one world and one foot in the other and feeling misunderstood in both worlds. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, Brown Girls Rising is meant to, is meant exactly for that audience. Uh, we, when people hear the term brown girls, it is either one that they wear with pride mm-hmm. or shame, mm-hmm. right? Anger baby, pride or shame. Yeah, It's always one or the other. Um, and even calling yourself a brown girl, uh, you know, we, we self-identify as brown girls. And even recently, the first newsletter that we put out at the beginning of the year was called We Are the Daughters of, Immig- of Immigrants. And mm-hmm. we put it out right when the travel ban was mm-hmm. announced. And we were so uh, infuriated in the office watching what was going on, yeah. the breaking news. One of our speakers for our March Worthy Women event in San Francisco was affected by the ban. Yeah. And we had to put out a public statement to say, "We, you're talking about immigrants like they're, you know, the pariahs in your neighbor's yard, right? Yeah. We are the daughters of immigrants. That's who we are. And we know who you are. Same thing. That was the first time. I and mean, we always get overwhelming responses from a lot of different things that we do. But I think that was the first time that my email has ever been flooded with stories of people's immigration stories, mm-hmm. how they came here, whether mm-hmm. legally or illegally, and so much of their shame stories. Again, it was a thing that people either held from a place of shame mm-hmm. or they held from a pra- place of pride. So we have to ask you, what does it mean for you to be a brown girl? And do you call yourself a brown girl? That's a great question. I definitely identify with the term. And I, I do think of myself as a brown girl. I think of myself as a Latinx, you know, millennial woman. That's definitely a brown girl. And that's something that I, I remember being little and my dad would always tell me, um, well, you're Mexican. You're Mexican. And I was like, okay, I get it. Relax. Yeah. <laughs> Even though I'm only half Mexican, my mom's Guatemalan. But he would just say, don't forget you're Mexicana. And I understand this because he it, it, he wanted it to be something that I was never ashamed of and something that I never lost touch with, that I always knew what my roots were. My parents made really big efforts in always taking me back to Mexico and to Guatemala and spend time there and spend time with relatives. And it's only been recently with everything that's been going on that I realized how much it gave me a global perspective Mm -hmm. on what life is like outside of the United States. Because I think what's missing from this conversation so often is, and you, you spoke to it, Audrey, is the other people, those other people. And just really that lack of maybe exposure or um, willingness to learn more and be open about other people and their own experiences has really made our country very, very polarized. Yeah. I remember my first experiences feeling otherness were in grade school when my family moved from Hollywood to Rancho Cucamonga and I started to go to school in Redlands, California, which at the time was extremely like isolated and white. Mm-hmm. And it was the post-racial 90s and nobody would say, oh, you're different. But it kind of was like, oh, you're not like us. Yeah. You're exactly like us and we don't see your color, but you're not like us. Yeah. And it was that kind of hypocrisy that I couldn't put my finger on, which was why I was such a troublemaker. But how did? when did you first 
feel or understand or see the otherness in yourself and in the world around you? Well, I had a, a similar experience. Um, I moved from one city in LA County that was predominantly Latino, and then I moved to the city of Downey, which at that point, I mean, there I wouldn't say the mansions of Downey, the 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 Mexican Beverly Hills. Is it really? So if That's you what they call for it. our audience who don't know this, Downey has a, f- a few areas of like mega mansions. Yeah. And they're all Latino owned. And uh-huh. it's literally like we call them the mansions of Bever- uh, the mansions of Downey because you go down these streets and it looks like Beverly Hills has been transplanted. But, you know, you know, they're Latinos or they could be Middle Eastern because literally there's pillars uh-huh. everywhere. There's palm trees mm. everywhere. There's flashy cars with big rims. And there's you're just probably like, Greek goddesses. Minus yeah. The Greek goddesses. But yeah. Fountains. Some. Yeah. The fountains. There's a Greek Wednesday. community there, though. Yeah. No, because so, you know they have those. Yeah. yeah. So that was so that was the city where Latinos moved when they were up and coming. Yeah. If you grew up in the southeast portion of the county where I grew up, so we moved there, and I had never been around a lot of white people, um, or a lot of people of other ethnicities. So it was great in that way because it gave me that exposure I was just talking about, which is so important. I grew up with friends of all races. Um, Same. And so that was very helpful. But at the same time, it was when Prop 187 happened, which oh. at that point was the most, you know, anti-immigrant um, legislation or law that had been passed in the country. And it essentially quickly it barred undocumented immigrants from receiving any public service, including public education or even going to the emergency room. And so I remember my teacher wanted us to have a discussion about how we felt about the law because there was a lot of tension. There was walkouts going on. This was sixth grade. I had just moved. And I heard some of my white classmates start saying, well, those people just need to get out of here and they need to go. Yeah. And why do we have to pay for those people? And at that moment, I knew my my parents by then, they had um, obtained their you know legal residency. And I knew I was born here, but I still felt like they were talking about me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I still, and I knew that I had other relatives who were still undocumented. And, I, and it felt to me, it felt racial to me. It felt like it had racial undertones to your point. Yeah. Even though they weren't saying we don't want those Mexicans here, we don't want those people here, there was definitely racial undertones. And I, it was very eye-opening to me because that was the first time I was confronted with that. And I thought, oh, man, people don't automatically think of me as American. Yeah. No. no. They, I, don't, I don't fit their definition of what American is. And these were kids that I was interacting with on a daily basis. And I remember thinking like, they're hearing this at home with their parents. Yeah, everything you hear come out of a kid that young's mouth is something that their parents have said. Mm -hmm. And no, I grew up with the same thing where it was like, oh, but we're not talking about you. Mm-hmm. We're talking about those people. Like you're the okay kind. And even of now you hear that, right? Oh, well, you're you're legal. Like, or you, you don't have even anything though I hate to worry that, about that term. But like, what are you yeah. worried about? You were born here, and I'm like, well, this is about Everyone. scapegoating an entire group of people. And you start with the most vulnerable people, which in this case is undocumented immigrants. Yeah, I have the complete opposite experience of you guys. My otherness. Uh, I grew up in a predominantly Latino. Um, neighborhood in the 90s during the gang eras, Paramount and North Long Beach. Everyone and their mom is Mexican and related somehow. Like your <laughs> primo, like married somebody who's that person's cousin. And I always remember being aware because I'm half white mm-hmm. of you're half white. You got a white name. Your Spanish isn't as good as ours. Your you're parents, different. Your parents aren't hood ghetto. Like you are different. And talk about us versus them, quote unquote. 
um, that we experience in this sense of like, but I'm a brown girl rising. I'm just like you, right? Well, apparently I'm the white girl with the pocha Spanish who's affecting your existence, right? Yeah. Us versus them. And I'm suddenly the them. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm us. I'm us. I'm with you. I'm same thing. Same and thing. I would and I would have my cousins tell me, why do you speak like a white girl? And I'm like, oh, what does that mean? Welcome to my world. <laughs> and also when you look at the flip side of that too, I'm my mom is a white Latina. Mm-hmm. So by that thread, I am also half white. But because I look this way, no one is like, oh, you're half white. You're half white. Because I look a certain way. Like I always say Audrey is way more Mexican than me. Oh, I'm super chill. She's way more Mexican than me. But I look more (laughs) Mexican. So people assume I quote unquote look more Mexican. So people assume that I have this experience. I haven't had any of it. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't had any of it. Like I got no Mexican growing up. All my families in Chile, they live overseas. All I had is my immediate family here. My grandparents lived with us. They were Chilean. That's what I got. Oh, let me tell you, I had a fake ID. I used to sneak out to go to El Parral. I <laughs> loved Banda. And because nobody thought I was Mexican enough, I went hardcore Mexican. If my mom would have let me shave my eyebrows, I'd have been like super chola. I got my chola tattoo. I ran with my like crowd of friends that got pregnant, got uh, married too young, were in jail, got in all kinds of legal trouble. Like I ran with the wrong crowd because I wasn't Mexican enough. enough. So I overcompensated. Yeah. I mean, oh, I used to have the botas, the vibra with the matching belt. Oh my oh. God. Oh my God. I live for those. If I had come, if my parents hadn't taken me out of LA and I feel like they did that on purpose because they saw the evil in me <laughs> because they were like, this, this girl is going to get knocked up quick if we don't get her out of here. Um, if, I mean, I would have, Dude, I would be in jail. I was I was always in trouble. And the reason I never got in trouble was because I was always running with the white kids. And if I was doing what they were doing, they couldn't single me out yeah. and not look like racists. So yeah. that worked in my favor. That's why I didn't get expelled because I was getting in trouble with the principal's daughter. And they were like, well, we got to expel them all or we don't expel any of them. See, and I took on the role of like the nice, white, quiet Latina who was just like very agreeable and just very like... I mean, I didn't say yes, sir, but I might as well have. Uh, And it took me a while to unlearn that behavior, especially once I entered the professional world and I was working in politics, which is very cutthroat. Yeah. Um, So I I feel like we sometimes we learn to code switch a lot, right? Like if if you're with your Mexican friends from Paramount. Oh, we still get hood. Right? Like you're one way. And then if you're in the professional setting, it's a different way. It's a conjunto in a backyard. And I think I didn't realize (laughs) that like not everybody has to do that. There's a specific group and specific experience where we're constantly um, navigating these different versions of ourselves. Yeah, there truly is. Yeah. Um, And being yourself and what you're going through are not always accepted. Yeah. and it's not something that's reflected in in the culture, which is why I think I started writing, why I wanted to tell that story. Mm. And, you know, why now I want to work with with people and, and with with projects that are um, showing a more accurate and reflective experience. Yeah, because you're not allowed to be one thing. I mean, yeah. you're not allowed to be more than one thing. You have to be one thing. Yeah. People want to say, oh, you're this. They mm-hmm. like to put you in you're boxes. You're that. And yeah. when you say, no, I'm all these other things, they're like, well, how is that possible? Yeah. You guys are all the same. You're so complicated. Yeah, it's so weird how complicated you are. You're so feisty. Yeah, you're yeah. Sp- you're, you're spicy. spicy. You're, spicy. Hey, Latina. you're spicy. You know who's spicy? Yeah. My dog. What? <laughs> His name's Tapatio because he's old and grouchy. He's spicy. <laughs> or in the word, my dad actually, my white dad named him. He called him 
Tio. In fact, this is a funny story. His real name is Pepito. And my dad couldn't pronounce it. And he used to call him Papito, Papito. And I was like, Dad, you're calling him like Papito. Like, <laughs> like he's your gay like buddy. Daddy. Yeah. And he goes, but how else do you say it? And I go, you know, Pepito. And he couldn't pronounce it. Um, and he would call him Pepito, little Pepe. And then one day he was like, Top Tio. And I was like, what are you? What did you just say? He's like, well, look, he responds if you call him Tapatio. And that's how he became Tapatio. He won't respond to his real name anymore. Even the names get complicated. My son's name is James Dillon. And I overheard my dad telling somebody, somebody asked, oh, what's your grandson's name? But my dad doesn't speak English. And then he goes, I don't know. You know, they give him these names that like you can't, I can't even pronounce. Right? And I, I was like, oh, man. <laughs> I live this. My name is Audrey Bellis. Nobody on my mom's side of the family. Well, not nobody. Uh, for the most part, everybody can pronounce it, except for some of my tias pronounce it a little funny. My grandma can't pronounce it. She mm -hmm. calls me Aji, Audrey. Yeah, they started calling me Chata because nobody could say Betsy. Oh. And my mom said she named me Betsy because I was the first person in either one of their family, you know, either one of the families to be born here in the U.S. So she was like, I wanted like the most American name I could find. Oh, yeah. So she named me Betsy after the woman who... Uh, so, so, so the, the American flag. So the American flag. Yeah. And she was like, I figured if I named you Rosa or something, you were gonna start going by Rosie anyway. So I just <laughs> saved you the trouble. And I was, so so when I went to work, I went to work on a campaign in Iowa, and they were like, we thought you were like some white girl from Santa Monica named Betsy, and said you're a Latina who lives in East LA. <laughs> <laughs> My parents did not care. They were like Yvette Dorama Montoya. I still have the two last names though. Yeah. No, yeah, my, my other one. What yeah. I would have given to have a Latino last name. If I could have had my mom's maiden name, it's Muis, like mm -hmm. Audrey. Why Bellis. don't you just tack it on? It's weird to tack it on now. At this I'm, point, I have a I have a brandy vet. I'm Audrey Bellis. I'm Montoya Pizarro. Mm -hmm. And then by that thread, they all track them on. Like my uncles go, they go Pizarro, Le Marchand, and then they add like Zuniga, like all of them. Yeah, I have both my last names as my legal name. And so sometimes my names won't fit in the box. <laughs> and then I'm like, which do you pick? I mean, it's very, uh, normally I go by Cardenas. Yeah. Yeah. But my mom gets offended. That's hilarious. I know, it's so South American. It is. In Central America. And Central American. To add all the last names. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Man, thankfully I'm just Mexican and, and easy on that side with my non-Mexican last name. <laughs> yeah, it felt like I was like ambicultural, like Latina in the US, plus like Mexican and Guatemalan have very distinct cultures. I as, feel you. As it was always very <laughs> much reinforced by my relatives. Like it, it was like, even in Spanish, they have different words for everything. So I was like, no wonder I was so confused at points because I was navigating so much. The first yeah. time I heard the word aguacate, I was like, what, what is that? My mom always tells the story of when she came from Chile and she met my dad's mom for the first time. She was like, no tienen elote? And she was like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> and she would be like, oh, my God, why do they have so many different foods here? And like, because we call it choclo. Oh, yeah. And aguacate mm. es palta. So like she was offering her all these foods. And my mom was like, I've never had that. I've never had that. <laughs> I've like, never had that. I have no that. idea what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah. And then she saw it. And she was like, oh, OK, we have different words. Yeah. You guys are but I think it's made me a more empathetic human overall because mm -hmm. I've, I've had exposure to different cultures and, you know, growing up in the U.S., but also having some firsthand experience of what life is like in Latin America. I think it's given me a lot of empathy 
that has informed a lot of what I what I've done. And speaking of empathy, you know, and more on uh, going back to your point about telling stories, telling authentic stories, you know, Brown Girls Rising, we say this is the place for the stories that you wish the media was telling you about. Yeah. Um, I read an article that you wrote about uh, depression in the Latino community. And I know for me, I had a massive depressive episode after my broken engagement in my mid-20s. I spent a period where my life was falling apart and I spent six months in bed just unable to function. And nobody ever said to me, you are depressed. Something is not right that you cannot get out of bed right now. Everybody was like, it's a phase. She's going to get over it. Mm -hmm. And I finally got to this point where I was ready to pick myself up. I saw a therapist for a brief period. And I remember telling my mom this. And even now, my mom doesn't like to refer to it as my depressive episode. She just likes to talk about it when I was lost. Yeah. I was pretty. Niña perdida. And um, I remember telling my mom, like, mom, I'm seeing a therapist. I'm going through a depression. And she looked at me and she goes, I Mika, that's something that your dad's side of the family would say. <laughs> and then, and then, like, it was privilege that you could be able to yeah. see a therapist. And then she was like, a little bit like, you have too much time on your hands that you feel that you need to be depressed. Did I have time to be depressed? No. I was always worried about surviving. And then it became what I like to call the uh, the martyr that she does, um, or I think many parents can do. And my mom goes, "I what did I do wrong in my life that you need to go tell a stranger how I ruined this for you? That's what right? my mom says. That's what and, my mom told me. <laughs> and, and depression is not widely accepted. We don't talk about it. It's not okay. And within the Latino community, it was when I told people and I started openly talking about my experience and, and overcoming this and changing patterns in my life and choices and what I was doing, um, People were almost like that. Nobody wanted to say me too. I get that, and yet it's like the secret thing that we all know that other people struggle with. And you look around at your family history or other people's, you know, behaviors, and you go and you sit there and you're like, you, see you can begin to recognize it in other mm -hmm. people. Yeah, my both sides of my family has like anxiety and depression, but we've never talked about it and we've never identified it. It's just like my grandmas were just, you know, sad all the time mm -hmm. or they just couldn't function sometimes. Like I remember episodes where my dad's mom would just be in her room with the shades drawn for days. I had an end like that. And no one would say anything. And I just remember her dresser being full of pills. And like my, my mom's mom, she didn't get medicated until she was in her 80s, but she was on antidepressants until she died. And I've had my moment too where like I I did go to therapy and I haven't told anybody about that. Yeah. I haven't told my parents. I yeah. I don't even know how I would be able to bring that up. When I was 19, I went to the doctor and I was having these massive heart palpitations and symptoms mm -hmm. that I thought I was having a heart attack. So I go to my primary care doctor and I said, I need like an EKG or I need you to examine me because I'm, get, I'm, I'm having heart attack symptoms. <laughs> So she yeah. indulged me and we had some of the exams and she's like, there's nothing medically wrong with you. She's like, have you ever thought about seeing a counselor? And oh, you're like, having panic attacks. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like it got to the point, it was my first year of college, I remember, and I had to pull over because my foot wouldn't stop shaking and I couldn't drive. And I thought there was something medically wrong with me. And so this doctor, she was, she happened to be Latina. And I feel like she really had a big impact on my life because she told me in that moment, she was like, look, if you're having so much stress at home with your family, maybe you should consider moving out. She was like, your mental sanity is worth making changes in your life and you should see a counselor. And so I went back and I told my mom and she was like, well, 
I don't know what you're going to do when you have real problems if you're already crumbling at 19. Oh, oh my gosh. That's my that's mother. terrible. Right. And it's just this like it was almost like it's painful. Like it's weakness to admit that you are having a hard time coping with things or it, it's yeah. weakness to be sad. Which and, is a shaming mechanism. Yes, it, it actually is. makes it worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember when my grandpa um, started really getting into the throes of like Alzheimer's and dementia and everyone in my family just kept going on like everything was normal it's and it's like it's not normal and i remember vocalizing i'm like this is affecting me we need to talk about this because i don't feel safe in my house and i don't feel okay and i remember my dad was like Yvette, we just deal with it yeah we're all just dealing with it i don't know why you need to talk about it and then those mm. of us who are naming these things or being upfront about it we feel like we're, a we're being gaslighted because we're being denied right those yes. feelings or being told to stop talking or we have to carry the burden of, of these truths because nobody else wants to deal with it. Yep. So it, it is it is it is uh, challenging, and you know, I think of anxiety and depression as um, kind of a chronic illness. It's something that you deal with at different stages in your life. For a lot yep. of us, that's definitely the case for me. And so I constantly have to be vigilant, and you know, to your point, Audrey, enact self care, make changes in my life, and in a way protect myself and insulate myself. So that I can stay balanced and healthy, and th- and that's another reason why I wrote that article. And it was so funny because years later, a coworker who didn't really know me at that point, she was like, "Hey, I, I was looking up articles about how to deal with depression in the workplace, and I came across your Forbes article." Oh, and that was years later. It was like yeah. like a couple years later, and uh, that's been one of my most um, searched articles, and one of the articles that has the most hits even now. And I think it's because so many people are suffering in silence and they feel that it's something they can't talk about. And I think for Latinos, there is that extra layer of a, you know, mental health and therapy isn't something that's maybe available to a lot of, to a lot of our, our other family members or it wasn't a tool that they thought about uh, utilizing. And so there's that additional shame that comes with being open and talking about these issues and the shame of, you know, Oh, you have so many problems. You have to go talk to somebody about them. Oh, your life's that hard. Well, I, you know, crossed the border and supported like my seven siblings in my dad's case, right? Like I was yes. sending money to my seven siblings. Oh, but you think you have problems, right? Yeah, that is 100% it. And so I've been able to let go of that shame and just accept, you know, my parents' experience is theirs and mine is mine. Just the same way that my son, who is going to be second generation, like he'll probably have his own set of challenges that will be different from mine. Um, So I think not denying other people their experience is really important. And I think recognizing like, you know, we look at our parents and we look at our grandparents and the patterns that we see in those experiences. And I think the only thing that truly comforts me in this is thinking that my parents love me the only way that they know Mm -hmm. how. Mm -hmm. They are doing the best with what they can. And this is all they know. And if that's all they know, you know, as you said earlier, talk about having empathy. How can I have much more empathy for that and realizing that they're not here to tell me you didn't do enough of this, you're not doing that, it's not the way we want it for you, that they only ever want the best for us. And I think of, you know, my mom coming to this country. I'm a first-generation child. My mom came to this country for me, in her words, to have the things that she didn't, the opportunities that she didn't. And for her, that looks a certain way. Mm -hmm. That's college marriage, which my mother has. Um, but, you know, for her, it's this American dream of you get, you go to college, you have your career, you get married, you, you have, have the a nice house, house a nice you got to buy the house and that's yeah. critical. You need the house. You need it. 
right? You need to have two kids. You need a dog. You have to have a yard with a nice yard. And it's like, well, manicured. All these things are, you know, critically important because that is the sign that you made it. And that's what they fought so hard for, for us to have. The opportunity to have that. And when you don't have that or you do things differently, it's not that they don't understand, which they do they don't actually don't understand. Um, yeah. But it's not meant from a malicious point no, of view. No, not at it's all. It's meant from, we only want you to have stability. And when I started thinking about it in this terms, guess what? Being at a startup, working in tech, doing the things that we do, it's not always the most stable thing. It scares and them. It scares them. My parents them. were yeah. terrified when I told them, they were like, what do you mean you left your stable job with health benefits yes. related to the profession you've been doing to, like, what are you doing now? Yeah. They're, They're terrified playing I was on like Twitter. when I went to college for literature and English and I told my parents I was going to be a professor and then halfway through my master's I was like I don't want to be a professor and then I started working in tech and then I started working in a startup and they're like okay that's cool but like when are you going to really start making money though like when are you going to have a 401k when are you going to get a real job yeah when is when's the success going to actually happen I'm like I don't know. It's a journey. And it's like they didn't really have that. Oh, when I they didn't have mom, the journey. When I told my mom I was going to go find myself, she goes, Mija, that's because you're half white. <laughs> and, and I think that's what we have. We have, thanks to their hard work, we have that privilege. Yes. So again, what I started off with, which is having life-filled choices. Yes. Yes. And you also help other women empower uh, themselves to have life choices. So I am dying, dying to know this because it was one of my favorite memes when it was going around. BinderCon. Binders full of women. Binders full of what women. What is BinderCon? And so, how are you helping them? So BinderCon is a nonprofit that puts together um, biannual events in New York and LA so that women who want to be professional writers and actually make a living as writers and creatives. So these are freelancers. Yeah, these are freelan a lot of freelancers. Some it's women who are transitioning just like I was a few years ago um, and want to learn more about the business of writing. So mm -hmm. if you have a book idea, um, there's agents there and we set up a, a station so that you can actually pitch your idea. If you oh, want to cool. learn more about how to write a screenplay or you want to write fiction or you want to write about mystery novels um it's really a two-day conference that happens twice a year in new york and la where you can come learn about that and it's also an online community that stemmed from the mitt romney binders uh binders full of women comment <laughs> so what happened is that uh, a, a young writer started this facebook group and within a few days it grew to thousands of women Sounds like the marches. Yeah. So then it became this online community. So once you join the community, which is on Facebook, um, and is separate from the events, the events are, you know, you buy a ticket, you know, you come to the event. Um, but there's also this great online community of women writers who are supporting each other um, from helping each other. Oh, you want to get a byline in this magazine? Like, this is how I did it. This is how you get paid. This is how much it pays. Um, so it's a really, I think, great example of how online communities can connects people and I got put into it by a friend of mine who's a poet living in the east coast somewhere and I hadn't seen her in a while and she put me um in the community and then from then I, I joined the organizing committee here in LA and so this is my third year doing it um and I think it's it's perfect for somebody like me who didn't know where to start Mm -hmm. Because you don't often see, oh, this is a Latina writer and this is the community and this is the way. So that was a great example when I was pitching for a long time and my stuff wasn't getting picked up anywhere. So I said, you know, if, I, if I'm not going to be a writer right now, I'm going to be around writers. 
Yeah. And I think that's a really important piece. It's like if you want to be a part of a community, you want to be in a certain sector, you can start off by giving back to that community and becoming somebody who's contributing to that community because that's how a lot of my writing and a lot of the opportunities I've had, that's how it started by me just saying, I'm just here and I want to help. That's what we're doing with Worthy Women. We're creating a community for female entrepreneurs and creatives and women who want to learn how to do business, basically, because that's not something that you get in the world. People are either in it or they're not in it. And everyone else is trying to figure out how to get in it. Yeah. Our mission statement is we remove barriers to belonging and create communities where people thrive. So one of our biggest key assets is that all of our programming is free, Mm -hmm. free to the public. We do not believe that you should have to pay for access to peer mentorship or Mm -hmm. community, nor do we hide behind a paywall related to that. We found other ways to um, subsidize what we do so that we could continue to do this. And our biggest pillar um, or our biggest initiative, I should say, is making sure we get access to resources for people who actually need them in your hands, practical tips, ways to level up. Um, And we did that because we were really tired of going to events where people are here – I call it the scarcity. Oh my gosh, I just got published in this. That's great. How did you do that? I would die to do that. That's like my dream place to, you know, see my work. I'm sorry. I can't tell you. That. Are they like, oh, I don't know. It just happened. I it just, just woke up. Yeah. And that can be very off putting to those of us who are trying to start something new or, or, we're a little, I mean, there's, it's always scary to try something new or go in a different direction. I actually came to a Worthy Women event, and I think it was the week I knew for sure I was going to be leaving my full-time job before the end of the year. Because oh, it was which, just which, which one did you go, did you go to? I think it was, it was here at Maker City, and it was a panel, and Ramona Ortega was on it. <gasps> that was a good one. That was a really yes. good one, and it was a lot of women who made me feel like, you know, I can do this, and it's okay for it's okay that there's pieces of this that I'm still going to be figuring out because yeah. I think sometimes we're waiting for us to know everything and just okay, I'm I'm 100 ready and I know what I'm doing, and sometimes you just got to let yourself figure it out along the way. Yeah, yeah. it's a. What was the title of that panel? It I can't was. Remember, but it was good. It had Amy Roiland. No, no, no. It had um, Ramona Ortega. Ramona Ortega. Casey. Casey. Mm-hmm. It had NJ. NJ in LA. She's not dancing on the stage with Ty Dolla Sign. I don't know what <laughs> she's doing. <laughs> I could never get that out of my mind. I was like, what? and it had Christina Woody Train. Yeah, Woody Train. Yeah. Shout out to the a, Woody Train. That was a good one. And and there was a lot of that was a high energy panel. Yeah, most I was of our, say, most uh, of them are. That was a very um That was funny. That was a very worthy women-esque panel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a classic example of what we do. It was amazing, and I think building these communities is so is so powerful. And um, I think going back to the political context a little bit, my friend Linda and I started our podcast, Women Who Misbehave, because we we saw that there was a lot of energy around the election of women wanting to get involved, but women who were new to the space. Right. And I think yes. it, can, it can feel very like, well, I don't know enough, or I'm just getting started, or I don't want to ask questions because I don't want to look dumb. And so we wanted to create this space where we could talk about all those issues and how they intersect with pop culture and everything else that's that's going on. I think politics for a long time seemed very isolated and like it was happening over here with all these nerdy people like me. But now I feel like there's a lot more people who want to join the conversation. And that's exciting. I know. I've been looking on Instagram and seeing those town hall meetings where mm-hmm. the people are turning up yeah. at the politicians and they're getting scared. And like, I love that. 
Well, they should be held accountable. Not just that. I look at my Facebook feed of people that I'm friends with that are doing all kinds of awesome things, and I've never known more people in my life that are running for offices. That's exciting. For candidacy. You know why? Because we're sick of seeing things that directly affect us, and the truth is no one's going to make change for you, right? Nobody nope. advocates for us. We go out and we advocate for ourselves and by proxy ad- advocate for other people. It is truly a life of service when you choose civil service. Yeah. And to see people that I love and admire step into this role and say, I have been called to serve. It is so inspiring to see that. And so while the election, while disappointing in the outcomes, I'll tell you what, we're not going to stand for this in four years. No. I have never been more proud to see so many people say, I'm tired of being complacent. Yeah. I'm yeah. going to change this for my future. And maybe, I hate to say this, but maybe this is what we needed to see our country go through a change and shake it up. Yeah. yeah. I think it, it woke a lot of people up to things that maybe we had taken for granted or battles that we thought were over and yes. belonged to our parents or our grandparents and I think now that we find ourselves fighting for for very basic rights. We're fighting for our futures. And the fu- and the future of our country, really. And and you think about... And the planet, dude. And you, and you think... Yeah. <laughs> dude, the planet. We like, we like our planet. I know Where they, just, I know they just discovered seven more, but we like this one. I know. Uh, I saw that. And you think about, you know... Fake news, so global warming is I know, fake but news. like, don't tell people that because then they're just going to start planning to live there and they're going to ruin this one. And you think about Latinos and millennials, and we represent a large portion of the elect- electorate and a large portion of the population. And you think about a state like California, like people like us are going to determine what the future looks like for Californians. So I always like to remind people, you know, there's a governor's race. There's so many other like, yes, what's happening maybe in Washington. We don't we don't like it and we should pay attention and be involved. But there's a lot going on at the local level, too. There's going to be a governor's governor's election next year here in California. There's your city council. There's your school board. Because all those those people start at the bottom and they move up the ranks and end up in in more powerful positions later. I read something about how um, politicians come up, at least female politicians, come up from the school board. Mm-hmm. Like that is the jumping off point for them. And that since um, Betsy got into office, so many, many more women. women are running for school board, which is amazing. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. Yeah, I'm really excited about the future because I see so many people who are. They fired us up, man. Yeah. I now think they're we're finally seeing like we're the ones we've been waiting for. Yes, we are. And yeah, so are. who were the women ahead of you that inspired you to be who you are today? Who are your feminist icons? We talked about a little bit. I think uh, Gloria Steinem was one of them. Yep. One of the things I realized in my adult life is that a lot of my education focused a lot on um, white middle class feminists because that's kind of what I was taught. So I've tried to, you know, there's so many other heroes. There's Sonia Sotomayor. I, I love mm. her. And I think she's, we do a, too. she's an amazing role model of what an outspoken Latina looks like. Um, Sherry Moraga, who's an amazing um, Chicana writer. Um, Roxane Gay, who wrote one of my favorite books called Bad Feminist. Mm. And she really talked about the feminist movement and how we can make it our own um, and impact culture and politics in a really innovative way. And um, all the women in my family who I think have been survivors and trailblazers in their own way. I would like to point out that so far, every single guest that we've had has brought up the book Bad Feminist. And every single guest who we've had has brought up well, the feminists that we learned about are not feminists that look like us. What did, what did Marty call them? Susan B. Anthony feminists. 
Yeah. Yeah. White white feminism, as it is commonly called today. Or I had a professor in college (laughs) who was very much of that, like, second wave feminist generation of the 60s and 70s. And she told me, she told the whole class that our feminism was stupid because we wore mini skirts and just like sluts, basically. That's what I was saying in, like, the our first episode with Marty that I thought, because those were my feminist icons too, Mm -hmm. my teachers who had learned that and were imparting that to me, the white feminism of the 70s and 60s, um, that I thought by like taking off my bra and not shaving my armpits, I'm like, I'm I'm a feminist. <laughs> so glad this you is got feminism. Over that. <laughs> I appreciate you with a bra and shaved armpits. Well, I don't shave my armpits, but that's another story. <laughs> it, it's winter, so <laughs> I can get down with We're that. Hibernating, <laughs> Betsy. It's been amazing having you here on the podcast. Where can our listeners find you? So you can find me on Instagram, Betsy Ime C. You can also find me um, on our podcast Instagram, Women Who Misbehave. And you can find me on my site, BetsyAime.com. And Aime is spelled A-I-M-E. It's Amy in French, as my mom says. Fancy. I love it. Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, Betsy. It's been amazing having you. This has been Brown Girls Rising. Thank Bye. This episode of Brown Girls Rising was brought to you by Nylon Español and recorded at Maker City LA in sunny downtown Los Angeles. We hope it's inspired you. For more, visit browngirlsrising.com. Follow us socially on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Worthy Women LLC and Brown Girls Rising for future episodes. Until next time. <laughs>